Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka The Bizzle, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 8.0. This episode is going to be a sort of retrospective analysis and revisitation of the entire Terminator franchise on both movie and television. And while I'm not a hardcore Terminator fan, as good as a couple of the movies were and others not as good, the universe it created, or sort of the big ideas, as I call them, that it presented, while not totally unique, um, put a new spin on them, both from a kind of scientific, technological standpoint, as well as a creative, aesthetic standpoint. And the most recent property up until now was... Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, the television show that had a couple seasons on Fox and was really a, a mind-blowing science fiction TV show and took the ideas behind Terminator to wholly new heights that it never could before, never wanted to before, or never was able to before. The impetus for this podcast, from a direct standpoint, obviously, is the release, or impending release, of Terminator Genesis, the fifth Terminator movie, which is coming out in early July, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as the good version of the Arnold Terminator and Amelia Clark playing Sarah Connor. She will be the third person playing Sarah Connor. Uh, it looks like from an age and maturity and sort of timeline standpoint is going to be sort of where Linda Hamilton was at the beginning of Terminator 1, the first Terminator movie in 1984 in terms of her age, but is clearly in possession of much more information than Linda Hamilton was at the time, having Arnold, a Terminator, reprogrammed as her protector, and an unknown relationship with her future son, John Connor. Did she have the son? Send it in the future, whatever. Um, John Connor obviously plays a role, um, but I thought this was a great time to sort of dive into some of the more deeper elements of the Terminator franchise on a philosophical and technological level, and how there's a lot more going on there, even when the movies um, or whatever aren't great, there's some very interesting ideas put forward. I'm also very excited about the direction of the franchise now, mostly because of Amelia Clark and Arnold Schwarzenegger working together, which I think is a great team, and just seems like the right time in 2015 to at least give a shot at rebooting this and see what we can do. So I'm going to be tackling a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to start by talking about science fiction in general, both books and movies, uh, sort of the originators of the great sci-fi ideas, and now what it's like to craft um, science fiction visions decades after the masters have passed or have finished their work, but that's going to lead directly into discussion of time travel, artificial intelligence, the singularity, um, the complexity of machine development. Can they have emotions? Can they make independent decisions? Will they, you know, inevitably be bad guys and kill us all like we see in so many movies? Or will it be a more nuanced development where perhaps they are interested in humanity in ways outside of just killing or enslaving them? And ultimately, I'm really going to dive into the Sarah Connor Chronicles because there's more depth in that show than in all the movies combined. And when you have 30 episodes and 
they were planning on having many more. It was canceled for still unknown reasons. They're just able to tackle so many of those issues. So, going to get through the general Terminator stuff first in relation to science fiction, as well as our society, and then really dive into Sarah Connor Chronicles. One last note before we get started is that I'm going to save the most spoilery stuff, especially about Sarah Connor Chronicles, for the end. I'm going to assume you've probably seen at least Terminator 1 and 2, uh, although I, you know, I won't go out of my way to spoil them, and I'll do a lot of talk about the characters and overall plot of Sarah Connor before spoiling them, and you will be very well warned multiple times when that spoiler section is coming. I hope you enjoy this. I really hope the movie is great, both because I would have looked good with the podcast and my prediction that it will be very good, but also just to enjoy it because I love the guilty pleasure of the Terminator franchise. So I hope you enjoy it, and here we Go. In the future, the singularity will determine the fate of mankind. Will it help save the world or destroy it? Machines will take human form. Humans will be modded by machines. Books, movies, television, art, philosophy, religion, or history. These are the tools to understand the choices we have yet to make and the consequences of those already made. The war to save mankind begins now with the Bizzlecast. It's really interesting about the Terminator franchise is that in a lot of ways, the idea or the ideas behind um, and that underlie the Terminator universe are more interesting than the properties themselves. And this is not uncommon with science fiction. And I have been um, a massive fan and follower, reader, watcher of science fiction since, you know, I was a pretty little kid. And you see this all the time, which is that coming up with the big idea that sells science fiction, both, you know, literally sells it, but also in the sense of, like, from a literary standpoint or a filming standpoint, sells it to the audience, gets people interested um, enough to consume it. The ideas are very, very hard to come up with, especially if you're trying to come up with something that's not totally derivative from other authors or writers or properties. And if you nail that big idea, you've got a good shot if you're a decent writer. The problem is, the cooler the idea, the more interesting and complicated it is, the harder it is to execute a fully realized vision of that idea that can live up to the idea itself. See the same thing in philosophy. Coming up with the big philosophical ideas, that's what's remembered, you know, going uh, down the line from a historical perspective, I mean, you know, Descartes and Kant had some incredibly brilliant insights, but looking back on them now, if you kind of, you know, take them apart or, or question the, the logical method that was used and even the sort of historical assumptions um, that lay behind them doesn't necessarily hold up. Now, in science fiction, you have the additional challenge of predicting what the technology is going to be like in the future, and, well, at the same time, realizing that you are, A, going to be wrong about some, if not most, of your predictions, but, B, you need to make a cool enough vision that 
it still is readable decades and decades down the road, even if you were wrong about those predictions. Um, Frank Herbert with Dune did this brilliantly because he basically created an entirely new technological vision that he knew even at the time would never be the case. And I think that's really the way to go when you're doing you know, what you call like far future science fiction, like Dune, which is tens of thousands of years down the line. And the, you know, the great father of modern science fiction, Isaac Asimov, did the same thing. He had stories that were tens of thousands of years down the line and had a very sort of minimalist approach, actually, about not revealing too much about the intricacies of technology, partially because Asimov was more interested in the philosophical ideas behind his stories and behind the technology in his stories, and partially because um, I would think he sort of realized that it was going to be outdated at some point, and so... um, you know, and this is the argument for for CGI in, in movies, which is that you know try and use as little CGI as possible because at some point it is going to look outdated and it is going to date the movie. And while the movie might still be great, it might not necessarily hold up. And I think that's why we're seeing a return to more practical effects, like with Mad Max Fury Road, which just came out a couple weeks ago and and critically has been very, very, very acclaimed. And while I didn't love Mad Max Fury Road and make it into that at some point, it was an extremely different and dark and disturbing and at times horrifying, but very original scenario, uh, uh, post-apocalyptic scenario. You know, we have so many of those, as I've talked about before, but some still manage to stand out. And while I didn't love everything about Mad Max, it, it, it was a very creative uh, vision of a highly disturbing future. But with Mad Max, the whole point was that while there were CGI enhancements, they were really f- flipping and burning and exploding all of these cars, which is really what's happening during the whole movie, are these giant you know, car, motorcycle, truck chases through the desert and these battles that are going on as people jump back and forth between the vehicles. And uh, it it was very expensive, obviously, to do it, but it does sell it being real. And so I do think it will hold up better than some CGI movies a few years from now because of that very fact. And so science fiction has the inherent challenge of remaining relevant as... Time pushes forward, and some works like Asimov and Ray Bradbury and Robert Heinlein and and Frank Herbert, others, um, Orson Scott Card with Ender's Game and so forth, writers in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, their concepts for what the future might look like and how they, you know, flesh out and develop and evolve those concepts within their stories are still really, really compelling, even though some of their technological predictions were way off base. Although, with these guys, you know, they were right about, you know, more than they were wrong, or at least they were right about more than any normal human being uh, would would possibly be capable of uh, from a prophetic standpoint terms of specific technology itself but also the fallout of technology with Ender's Game the fact that you know kids are really going to control things at some point in the far future because their learning curve you know is is so much more advanced than an adult with technology hits the singularity and beyond it's going to be you know children or young people that are are 
physically in terms of their brains, the way the neurons are firing and the, and the connectivity and development of the brains, they're the ones who are going to be the smartest when it comes to technological um, ideas. And so Ender's Game takes that to an extreme where you know, they're at war with an alien race and they basically, not kidnap, but, uh, you know, kind of take children away from their homes at a very young age when they've identified extremely high aptitudes, like Mensa level aptitudes, and have them be, you know, running the war that's going on in the galaxy through computers and technology because they're the only ones capable of it. And there's other reasons too why children aren't chosen, but um, that's. That's a big one, the, the technological aptitude that is just inherent. The same way kids learn languages so much better when they're younger. And once you start hitting adulthood, unless you have a natural knack for languages, it becomes much, much, much more difficult. And so back to Terminator, you know, when Terminator came out in 1984, there were a lot of interesting science fiction things happening sort of the first half of the 80s and, or, or, or late 70s into the early 80s everything from Alien uh, to Blade Runner. I guess both are Ridley Scott movies, but are both very different in terms of their visions of the future. But at the same time, they're aesthetic and, and the stories, obviously, and the characters. But what Blade Runner and Alien do share are a dark vision of the future, but one in which it's dark mostly because of what humanity has done. Humanity, or or certain parts of humanity are still in charge and obviously when the alien comes into the scene in, in the movie Alien it gets extraterrestrial and Blade Runner the you know the conflict within the plot is a conflict with you know sort of androids that have been created by corporations to be slaves on other planets rebelling but again it's still sort of you know, a handful of very rich and powerful humans holding the reins of power, creating these scenarios in the first place. With Terminator, humanity is still at fault, but it's less culpable from a moral standpoint because the creation of Skynet, which is, you know, essentially the artificial intelligence singularity that is created by a tech uh, conglomerate called Cyberdyne um, in the Terminator universe was not meant, uh, at least according to the mythology, um, and there are numerous mythologies with Terminator, which I'll get to later, but the idea is it's a Frankenstein situation or a, or a golem situation, if you're familiar with the, the story of the golem, um, the Jewish folktale from, from Europe. You know, the idea that you're, you're trying to create something advanced, but you don't really recognize its consequences until it's too late. And so with Terminator, unlike with the Ridley Scott movie, the good guys and bad guys are pretty discernible because even if humanity is sort of indirectly or accidentally responsible for the apocalypse and the near destruction of all people on the planet, by the time we're introduced to the story, it's you know, Terminators are ruling the world in the future, and humanity is fighting back. Now, if it was just the robots killing humans in the future thing, it would be pretty derivative. But Terminator adds, and when I refer to Terminator, uh, just going forward, quick side note, 
I'm referring to the first movie, I will call it The Terminator or the first Terminator movie. When I just say Terminator, I'm talking about the entire franchise, the entire property, and everything related to it. Specifically, the four movies and the fifth, which is coming out in a few weeks, Terminator Genesis, but the four movies that were already out, and I'll also be spending a lot of time on uh, Terminator The Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was a short-lived but amazing television series a few years ago on Fox, where they basically took off from Terminator 2 and went in a new direction about what it would be like you know, over sort of a, a longer haul, you know, I think it's probably 30 plus episodes as opposed to just a movie and how, what that world would look like, what the characters would look like, and, and the casting and writing is great, but um, I'll talk about that later. And so, you know, it's Terminator, and it's trying to live up to its vision, but what was so impactful about the first Terminator movie was this aesthetic, the look of the Terminators when they're not in side, you know, hiding inside human flesh with that, you know, metallic bleach skull with the horrible grin on it. It's so unrealistic or at least, you know, the idea of this this evil smile is you know, robots would never consider that. That's there's nothing really strategic about doing that with your models, uh, robots' faces, other than maybe to intimidate humans. But watching it on screen, it's horrifying. And, you know, there's that first shot of, uh, in the Terminator movie, the first Terminator movie, where, you know, there's just this tank rolling over, you know, thousands of human skulls, and you see what they call the HKs, the hunter-killers, which are these, you know, sort of floating hovercraft. And even those, somehow, in, in a very quick couple of scenes in the Terminator when you see the future, the design of everything, the aesthetic is just so different and unique. Um, and from a purely aesthetic standpoint, I think it has really influenced, it definitely has influenced science fiction from a visual medium moving forward from when the first movie came out from 84 in the same way, or in a related way, I should say, to how The Matrix influenced cinematography, especially with fighting and you know how to film fighting and how to edit fighting. And nothing was the same after The Matrix. And I think Terminator was, was sort of similar from an aesthetic standpoint. And as great as the first Terminator movie is, and, you know, it's hilariously 80s, but it still looks great. And say what you want about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm never going to get out of the pulpit and defend him, but you know, he was born for the Terminator uh, role in the Terminator movies. And it's such a small story in the sense of there only being three main characters, even though the stakes are the survival of mankind, because Sarah Connor, who is you know going to soon give birth to the future Messiah, John Connor, but doesn't know it yet and doesn't know about the future, has to be rescued by a freedom fighter, um, a fighter from the resistance from the future, named Kyle Reese, who is sent back by future John Connor. And then you have Arnold as the Terminator, and it's, you know, it's a suspense horror movie, but these little touches of science fiction, when you see visions of the future, and eventually, you know, as Arnold gets shot up a little bit or whatever, you start to see the the endoskeleton um, un underneath his, his synthetic flesh, then what you have with the first Terminator is the best parts of science fiction.
In other words, a fully realized science fiction story that is in the best tradition of science fiction. When science fiction gets too epic, unless it's Star Wars, and this is part of the reason, or one of the many reasons Star Wars is so, so, so popular and had such an impact on culture, is that pulling off an epic vision of science fiction on screen the way it did is nearly impossible, and it's only really happened a few times since then, in terms of uh, space operas, as they call it. In books, it's much easier, because in a book, in a couple sentences, you can talk about how there's a battle between, you know, 50,000 ships or something, and you'll get that in sci-fi books, and you can visualize it, but it's impossible to do on screen. So with science fiction, it's always a balance between the big and the small. And with the first Terminator movie, you get the big and the small. It's the future of mankind at stake. John Connor, there's a messiah, there's an you know, evil robot army in the future that's committing genocide against humanity for reasons that are not completely clear. Uh, and this is a major critique of the Terminator, which I'll, I'll get to later. Um, and, and it's a critique that I'm not the only one to, to bring up ever, but I also have some defenses um, for uh, the critique as well. Um, but you, you have this gigantic vision, but at the same time, you have a small story of you know, a man and a woman trying to survive, and they fall in love, and they're, you know, gotta escape the Terminator and save the future, or at least start saving the future. And this really came to define the Terminator series, and came to define both the things that have worked and the things that haven't worked. There's a reason why both the Sarah Connor Chronicles TV series, as well as the new Terminator movie, Genesis basically only have the first two Terminator movies in continuity, as we say. Essentially, you know, only taking the first two into account because the third and fourth Terminator movies went so far afield in terms of not the the, the vision or the universe of Terminator, but in terms of storytelling, because Terminator 2, as well, as epic as it seemed at the time, and I think it's a little overrated now, because, you know, it was such a huge movie at the time, it had been like 10 years since the first one, before the sequel, and, you know, you had the liquid metal Terminator, who was the main villain, or really the only villain, I guess, um, and at the time, the technology to create the liquid metal effect, you know, what they used to call morphing, uh, was very difficult and expensive and cool. Now we take it for granted. It's quite easy to do, even on a low-budget television show. I mean, Sarah Connor Chronicles was filled with uh, liquid metal stuff going on all over the place. At the time, though, it was very complicated and expensive. But Terminator 2, like the first one, stayed true to the big-small formula. You still got you know some quick visions um, or you know portrayals, unveilings of the future where Skynet was still <laughs> causing lots of problems, to say the least, when it comes to humanity's survival. But in the end, the bulk of the storytelling and the plot and the character development were three characters again. This time, Sarah Connor, and now her son, who's an adolescent, John Connor, who, you know, I hated the actor who played John Connor. And I think... I may revisit this later, but it might be enough to just say that he was very underwhelming, and uh, for me, uh, the, that miscasting cost Terminator 2 from being on my personal best of sci-fi list. 
although there was a lot I liked about the movie. But Sarah Connor, played by the great Linda Hamilton, another female actor who was associated with one franchise, the way Sigourney Weaver was with the Alien movies, who totally kicked butt in the 80s and 90s and never really got any other roles, but are hugely, hugely influential on female protagonists or antagonists in, in film and television today who kick serious butt. I mean, it's a lot more common, obviously. Everything that Joss Whedon does, the Marvel movies, you know. Now we've got um, two new portrayals of Sarah Connor. You've Lena, Lena Headley, um, who played Sarah Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, who is now a major star on Game of Thrones and a great actress. And now you have Amelia Clark, also from Game of Thrones, playing Sarah Connor in the new Terminator movie, Genesis, and they both draw very heavily from Linda Hamilton and are open about it, and everyone knows she was awesome and made up for lackluster casting of John Connor. And of course, the third main character in Terminator 2, again, is Arnold as the Terminator, but he's been reprogrammed by you know John Connor or, or someone in John Connor's resistance movement in the future and sent back now to protect the Connors. And that, of course, is a fun part in the early movie where um, you know Linda Hamilton's in the insane asylum, Sarah Connor's in the insane asylum, and obviously she doesn't react well <laughs> when she first sees Arnold's face. And you have sort of a father-son thing going on with John, who, you know, who never knew his father, um, Kyle Reese. If you just look at those first two movies, you've got very interesting aesthetic technological vision for post-apocalyptic future. You've got some really interesting time travel mechanics, which we'll get into in great detail, and is probably the thing that fascinates people about Terminator the most is you know just the brilliant idea that John Connor sent his lieutenant Kyle Reese back to defend his mom in the past and then he ends up impregnating his mom and is the dad of John Connor and you know which is both absurd and endlessly interesting um but has that great side effect that comic books have sometimes where you know, you can actually use it to reboot the franchise as many times as possible because of the quantum theory of, of time loops and, and time continuums and the infinite universe theory, and, and we'll get into all that about whether it's one timeline that keeps changing or whether we just are seeing new timelines being created. But anyways, that's introduced in the first film and, you know, explored a bit in the second, explored a lot in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is meant to take place just a couple years after Terminator 2, when John Connor is a little bit older and, thank God, played by Thomas Decker, who is just awesome. And uh, I'll be praising the cast of Sarah Connor Chronicles a lot. It's like, finally, a worthy John Connor um, figure, even though he's still young. And going back to why the third and fourth movies were disappointing, other than just not being particularly well executed and miscast and all sorts of issues, was that they fell in love with, or, or I should say, they gave into the very human and understandable temptation to go all futuristic, to just say, all right, we've had two movies that sort of hint at the future, but take place in the modern day when those movies are released. Let's just go, you know, epic sci-fi. And I'm not saying that it couldn't have worked, but there's a reason why the Sarah Connor Chronicles followed the set-in-the-modern-day philosophy of the first two Terminator movies and why Terminator Genesis looks, for the most part, 
to be taking place in the present day as well, going back to its roots, because, you know, you want to leave stuff to the imagination. You know, when you see those hovering hunter killers and tanks and the Terminator robots and everything, it looks so cool, but if you just tease it here or there, it's actually way more scary, um, I think. And, you know, I think that's why, just going back to Alien really quickly, why most people would say, you know, Aliens, Aliens, which was Alien Part 2, basically, was sort of the action movie that everyone loved, the original Alien, where it's just one alien, and it's just a horror film, basically, artistically, is much more interesting, the way that the first Terminator movie, from an artistic standpoint, is, is superior, I think, because of its minimalism, and because of, you know, how it's so old, and, and so dated in some ways, uh, mostly on the surface, with, like, hairdos, and fashion, and, and some dialogue things, but just holds up so well as a self-contained story, as well as launching a whole new universe. And so, you know, I think Terminator 3 and 4, major wasted opportunities. And I actually, and as I sort of, you know, hinted at a few seconds ago when I brought this up, or I say very understandable temptation, I wanted to see the future. Or I should say, I wanted to see a Terminator movie that was set with adult John Connor leading the rebellion. And that is why when Christian Bale was cast... In Terminator Salvation, the fourth Terminator movie, I was super pumped because I love Christian Bale, even though, you know, apparently he's very difficult to work with and a lot of people don't like him, still puts in some great performances. You know, for all the issues I had with the Dark Knight trilogy, including his voice, which isn't his fault because he was told to talk like that when he was playing Batman, you know, was, was just did a great job and is usually great. And the visuals in Salvation were pretty cool at times, but the story was just not great in dialogue, and it just it didn't all come together, and it just shows how hard it is to take something, which is, you know, sort of a sidebar in the first couple movies, meaning the, the actual visuals of what's going on in the future, as opposed to just referencing it, and taking that sidebar and making it into a full-fledged film. And, you know, I mean, there were tons of rumors, and not even rumors, reports that were pretty much confirmed by everyone that Christian Bale was a pain in the ass on that set. Um, he was still pretty young, you know, I, he might still be a pain in the ass for all I know. But, you know, you had a, a director that doesn't even have a full name. I, I'm going to leave him nameless. He really does not have much to his credit and uh, visually did an okay job. I think he was a music video director or whatever. So the visuals were decent, but it just didn't come together. And so the Sarah Connor Chronicles kind of reboot the franchise and said, okay, we're going to go back to the thing that made this franchise great. And you do get visions of the future in Sarah Connor Chronicles occasionally the way that you do in the first two movies. But to go back to what the first two movies introduced, we talked about the great aesthetic. We talked about the time travel dynamics, um, which, um, just a quick aside, I, I probably will leave that for the final section 
um, whenever we get there, because I love talking about time travel and physics and, you know, quantum physics and relativity and everything. So it may come up organically before then, but that's my plan. I usually like to end the podcast on the super heady thought. So you got those two things, and you also have, with Terminator 2, the reprogrammed machines. But it's not just that they're reprogrammed, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2 being reprogrammed, and then the Sarah Connor Chronicles. You have Summer Glau playing a reprogrammed Terminator from the future named Cameron, who we find out is one of John Connor's closest confidants, actually. And there's some debate in the future about if John is putting too much of his trust and faith into reprogrammed Terminators. But what, what Arnold sort of starts in Terminator 2, and you know, Summer Glau takes to a whole new level in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, both because she's a much better actor and because they just have the time to do so, and that's sort of the point of the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I'm going to be referencing some stuff from the series. I'm not going to spoil any major things, but let's just say that Sarah Connor Chronicles is very interested in the notion that there's not a definitive line between man and machine always, and that it's possible that in the future... Um, in addition to reprogramming machines, that there are split among the machines themselves, just the way there are in, in the Matrix. I mean, you have the Oracle in the Matrix is one of the most powerful and central um, programs um, in the machine world, and yet she's working actively to bring down the the Matrix, or, or at least reconstruct it. So, as Neo says in Matrix Reloaded, programs hacking programs, and Sarah Connor Chronicles really brings that to the forefront and the notions of, well, okay, so why would machines be, you know, attacking each other or having a debate or hacking each other or whatever, you know, are humans behind this? Is this a a sort of machine-on-machine dialogue that's going on? And, you know, ultimately it's about what it means to be human. And the best science fiction for me is always, in the end, through whatever means necessary from a story or character setting, technological, whatever standpoint, it's all about what it doesn't mean to be human. And the Sarah Connor Chronicles are able to explore that in much, much greater detail in 30-plus episodes than could be done in Terminator 2. And so looking forward to Terminator Genesis, which I have to say, when it was announced... I rolled my eyes like everyone else and was probably rolling my eyes up until I saw the first trailer. And it wasn't just that the trailer was great because, you know, all the trailers have been funny and fun, nothing groundbreaking, but I'm a huge Amelia Clark fan who, as I mentioned in my last podcast with um, my friend and singer Brooke Hardy, who loves uh, the Game of Thrones books, we talked a lot about the Game of Thrones TV series and agreed that early on was much, much, much better. She's still watching it because she's addicted like so many people. I stopped for the most part, but I loved Amelia Clark um, as Daenerys Targaryen, aka Danny, aka Khaleesi, and was one of the main reasons that I was turned off from the series was how mishandled I felt her character was after the first season and continues to be from everything I can tell. But, uh, and it's not just that she's beautiful. I mean, she was so young when that first season was filmed and was just able to, um, in a very Jennifer Lawrence-esque way, project herself to be, if not older than she is, at least more mature or more grown up than her age in real life would indicate and really project 
being a princess or someone that could be a queen that could command armies and masses it's this tiny little you know woman just did a great job and you know the the hardcore terminator fans linda hamilton will always be sarah connor and i totally get that but not only was lena hedy's um performance as sarah connor and i mispronounced her name earlier it's i believe lena hedy not only was Lena's performance as Sarah Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles freaking amazing, and she's just, you know, just that perfect balance of being a mom, but being sexy, but being super tough at the same time. I mean, it's totally, you know, mom vibes, you know, mixed with superhero vibes at the same time. That's very hard to pull off. She's just a great actress. A quick aside, too, she's a British actress, and these days, these days, there are so many English actors and actresses in American television, and unless you knew that that was the case before watching them in film too, you wouldn't necessarily know, but when you start to find out who is English in some of these movies and TV shows, and you really listen closely, you usually can, let's just say there's sort of like a tell, the same way people you know, who play poker, and you're trying to bluff in poker, and players who aren't as good have what they call a tell, you know, where they blink an eye, or they sniff their nose, or, or you know, like, you know, lick their lips, or, or, or whatever it is. Um, there's usually a tell, I think, that where they're overcompensating to sound American a little bit, and two full seasons of Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, Lena Headey, you would never know. I mean, I still when I'm watching her, it never crosses my mind that she's English. Um, that's really hard to pull off. But trust me, she is English when you listen to the commentary. She's very English. Um, but anyways, not only was her portrayal so, so good, Sarah Connor really stuck true to the Linda Hamilton characterization while putting her own spin on it. But it showed that you could have someone else playing Sarah Connor. And, you know, in some ways it hurts Amelia Clark because... Now Amelia Clark has to live up to both Linda Hamilton and her castmate on Game of Thrones, Lena Headey. But the barrier is broken. So, well, there was one great one, and then there was another great one. So maybe she can beat the next great one. And I think, I thought she was going to be and look a little too young for the role. But since it appears she hasn't had John Connor yet in this, you know, reboot or whatever you want to call it, in Terminator Genesis... Uh, it makes sense that she would be on the younger side, the way Linda Hamilton was on the younger side in the first Terminator movie, um, which was 10 ye- plus years before Terminator 2, which was you know one of the most successful movies of all time. The idea of Amelia Clark and Arnold Schwarzenegger teaming up in a movie is amazing. And I mentioned earlier that while well, I've liked all the trailers, um, and they've gotten me you know, far more excited, let alone interested, um, in these movies than I was expecting to be. But the main reason I am excited for this, and I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast um, if I wasn't, or at least not putting it out now, which is Amelia Clark and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You have the guy that has defined action movies for like 40 years. Furthermore, the Terminator role was both his most defining as well as his best, um, at least, you know, when he's playing 
two-dimensional Arnold. Uh, I'm not sure if there is a three-dimensional Arnold there, um, but he was born for the Terminator role. You know, after he was in a disappointing third movie and not even involved in the fourth or the Sarah Connor Chronicles, though, you know, his presence hovers over the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and they talk about it, obviously, but you never see him, even in flashbacks or anything. You know, I think with the benefit of hindsight and a decent director, I mean, it is being directed by Alan Taylor, who directed some early episodes of Game of Thrones, and who I kind of ripped in the last podcast for uh, destroying Thor 2, but that was kind of an exaggeration. There were a lot of reasons why Thor 2 was not great, and if you look at the Game of Thrones episodes that Alan Taylor did in season 1 and two of Game of Thrones, which were by far the best seasons. He directed some clutch episodes in both seasons towards the end of the seasons, uh, which are always the most difficult um, but rewarding episodes to do, and it gets more epic and the stakes get higher and the tension keeps going up and up and up. And so I actually think from a humor standpoint, if you look at Thor 2, this is a match made in heaven. I think you could actually take some jokes from Thor 2 that were non-specific jokes, meaning not referring to you know Marvel stuff or Thor stuff, and you just give them to you know some of the characters in Terminator. It kind of works. Um, and so I've come around on Alan Taylor on this, and you can just tell from Arnold's performance in the trailers and all the photos he's doing on the press tour. I mean, he is really excited about this, and he's done a lot of crappy movies the last couple decades, and I have not seen him this excited or enthusiastic. And you see little video clips from the set, and he's just you know, got this energy um, that he hasn't really lost, even after being governor and being in a million bad movies. And Amelia Clark, too. And Game of Thrones has a really intense... I should say, she has a sort of unquantifiable intensity about her where there are times, as Khaleesi, as the the princess and the the queen of the dragons or whatever, where she has to assert herself and be tough, and that's where the Sarah Connor stuff's going to come from. But she also has that Sarah Connor attribute of being able to be silent or, you know, absorb information without having to say anything and yet conveying with her look... And just the way she carries herself, how complex her mental process is as these things are going on. And so I really have high hopes for this combination. And I think even if it's a mediocre script, but the production is really good and exciting, just the two of them with some decent uh, humor, some decent jokes, I think is going to be really fun. And I think this is the classic case of two actors who are really feeding off each other for different reasons. I think Amelia Clark is feeding off of Arnold's just abundance, an endless supply of energy, so it seems. And, you know, while he's the butt of many jokes, he has been in a lot of huge movies, and from everything I've always heard, he's a pretty good guy. It sounds like he's a good guy to work with. Despite the fact that he has the physique to do all these action movies, I'm not sure any of those movies would have happened if he weren't a team player, and he's very well aware of the limitations of his acting ability, but that makes him a better actor and a better character actor, and so he is a legend, and someone like Amelia Clark, even though she's younger than me, would have grown up on his movies the way I have, and so that must just be great for her. But even more so from him, he's feeding off of her energy, that unquantifiable intensity that I was describing before. You can see, even in those short trailers, his paternal instinct for her and the fatherly figure that he plays. And I think that's a really cool role that he explored in Terminator 2, but 
because of hindsight, again, and looking back at everything that's happened, that's worked and what's not worked, and because Emilia Clark is such a superior actor to the young John Connor actor in Terminator 2, I think he's really feeding off of her youth and enthusiasm and energy, and it looks like the synergy is going to be there. But, of course, the big twist, and I'm not really going to put a spoiler alert on this because they showed it in the trailers, which is that, while there is a good John Connor in the future, at some point, uh, Terminator version of John Connor seems to come back to the past, and we don't know what this version of Sarah Connor knows. Uh, I mean, I think it's clear she knows, having Arnold as her protector, that she's going to be the mother of John Connor, but beyond that, it's hard to, to sort of gauge it based on the other movies or the Sarah Connor Chronicles. You know, so there are some interesting plot things that could go on, and it looks like the production's going to be pretty good. I just think they need to restore the spirit, and I really think that Sarah Connor Chronicles restored the spirit. I mean, I could easily argue that Sarah Connor Chronicles are the third best Terminator property after the first two movies. I also think I could, with an extensive argument, make a case that it is superior in a lot of ways than Terminator 2, even though it would never have been possible both technologically and, and in terms of the, the story and the vision and, and the characterization and everything. Chronicles would never be possible without Terminator 2, but dramatically and writing-wise and performance-wise, I think it's far superior, um, with the exception of you know Linda Hamilton still being great in Terminator 2 and her performance in that being the thing that made the Sarah Connor Chronicles possible. She was a human female hero who was both a mom and an intense fighter, with great confidence, and like Sigourney Weaver, like I mentioned earlier, was the rare female hero, I hate to say it, that men, or, you know, I should say kind of average men identify with. You know, I love female superheroes and, and, you know, heroic characters from all genres in film and television and books. You know, maybe I just sort of have grown up in a more liberal age and environment where, you know, I, I... I take gender equality as, as a given, even though it's not manifested in society. Bottom line is, even dudes like Sarah Connor, because she was sexy and she was fucking badass in the way that the great female anime uh, heroes um, have those qualities. And of course, wouldn't be a, a Bizzlecast without mentioning anime or Ghost in the Shell and, and those properties from Japan. Bottom line is, whenever you're dealing with robots and artificial intelligence, the Japanese were on top of this, you know, decades before us. And so there's always going to be some taking from Japanese property, at least in those early movies, like Blade Runner and Terminator. Now we imitate those movies, or or we imitate the imitators of those movies. But it still stems from Japan, and I'm sure James Cameron and everyone would acknowledge that. So it's very difficult for me to talk about the new movie, because I just don't know what's going to happen in it, and it's less than a month away, and if it's at all good or entertaining, I'll probably do an uh, 8.5 review, um, non-spoiler review of the movie, if it is worthy of of a full, you know, podcast, or even a short podcast, I'll do that. I mentioned that kind of the two most interesting parts of Terminator, not just to me, but I think to the general audience, well, the main one is the time travel stuff, and not just that there's time travel, and not just that it seems both simple and ridiculously complex and unrealistic at the same time, but just the visuals of the whole thing. First Terminator movie, you have this good-looking guy, comes out of nowhere, saves Sarah Connor, played by Linda Hamilton, 
from something she doesn't even know about. She doesn't know about Terminator. She doesn't know about the future. Know about her son. And then the romance scene where John is conceived and then Kyle is shortly thereafter killed, taking down uh, the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's what launches the John Connor mythology. And because it's a character-based time travel notion and experience, and it's pretty simply quantified which is just that John creates John. John Connor creates John Connor by sending Kyle Reese to the past. And it's never really explained to us in in any of the properties. As far as I know, if there's any scenario under which John Connor, future John Connor, knew that that was going to happen, that Kyle Reese was going to be his dad, of course, this is where the time loop conundrum starts. Because let's just say... For the sake of argument, and I think this is probably the case, which is that John Connor, future John Connor, did not know that by sending Kyle Reese back, he would impregnate his mother and become his father. Let's assume that he didn't know that was going to happen. But as soon as the events of 1984, the first Terminator, happen, now Sarah Connor, in the new time loop, knows who the father is. And... John will learn who his father is. In both Terminator 2, he learns, I believe, and he definitely knows about him uh, when uh, the Sarah Connor Chronicles uh, starts a few years later, quote-unquote, in the timeline. And so, now what? So, (laughs) now, with this new timeline, let's jump forward 20 or 30 years to future John Connor, Messiah, leader of the Resistance, John Connor. How does that affect what happens? Because... You know, now he has to send Kyle back, but he can't tell Kyle that he's sending him back because that could, you know, throw the whole thing off. Hey, you're going to fall in love with this woman. Then all of a sudden, maybe he doesn't fall in love with the woman. And so, while I said it was apparent or, you know, was the case in the movies that future John Connor did not know what would happen in order for the time loop to make any sense, we have to assume that, in fact, he did know. And has always known, and will always know in every time loop. Something about the name John Connor. This is one of those little details that you just need to get lucky with. And that the name Sarah Connor and John Connor just work. They roll off the tongue. I know this seems like a small thing, but for a movie to become a legend where they're making a fifth movie like you know 30 plus years after the first one... All of these things matter, and there was just something about the way Linda Hamilton became Sarah Connor that lent gravity to the unborn John. And of course, it's just great here in the Terminators go, John Connor, John Connor, I am here to terminate you, John Connor. And the character was so compelling that the Terminator 2, as an adolescent, it was a horrible acting performance, and yet somehow didn't completely destroy the notion of John Connor as his legendary figure because in the back of your mind you're going well this kid sucks but we know that future John Connor is probably huge badass to say the least I mean if he's a messiah you'd think he'd be at least somewhat badass and just really good at convincing people to do stuff um, as a leader and inspiring people which is why Sarah Connor Chronicles is so brilliant because Thomas Decker's performance and the writing and the way his mom and his other friends and relatives are played around him, you really see why John Connor is John Connor. And you really don't see that anywhere else because he's either unborn, too young and immature, 
or Christian Bale is already, you know, future Messiah John Connor. And I think, just to circle back on Christian Bale real quick, I don't want to overstate the incidents that happened on the Terminator Salvation set. I know there was at least one huge incident that you have to apologize for and all this stuff. So I'm speculating that there was other stuff going on. And I have heard via, you know, Howard Stern and, you know, other people like him through interviews and whatever that not everyone loves Christian Bale in terms of other actors and maybe even other directors or producers or whatever. But I, I think John Connor was made a dark figure because Christian Bale's best performances, even when he's a good guy or a hero, are always super dark or, you know, very morally ambiguous, like when he was the the um, obsessed uh, magician in The Prestige or, you know, Bruce Wayne, a very dark version of Bruce Wayne, Batman, American Psycho... I mean, he's lovable in the fighter as this crack-addicted, dysfunctional older brother of a boxing star who, you know, just can't get out of his own way and is very funny and, you know, he has good chemistry there. So I, I, it's probably a project-by-project project thing. He is a method actor, and that rubs some people the wrong way. But I really think that adult John Connor needs to be essentially Chris Evans or Captain America. He needs to be a bit darker because the world is so much darker, but he needs to have the two things that make Cap Cap, which is an unshakable moral core and an extremely and rarely high aptitude for tactics and strategy and leading people and inspiring people having both the definable qualities of being a war leader and the indefinable charisma and even sort of vulnerability that you can bring out from other people and exploit, but because of the solid moral core, you exploit in a positive way, help everyone reach their potential and accomplish your goals to bring in a little Taoism theories of action there. Cap really gets people to do things uncoercively in a very Taoist way, even though you'd think Captain America would be the furthest thing from a Taoist, but there are a lot of qualities of just leadership and and humanity and how he is as a person um, that are very Taoist, and I think that Christian Bale is just too dark for, you know, John Connor, even as Salvation, that was the whole point, and it does seem to be the point in the new movie that John Connor's not exactly a Boy Scout, or at least not the whole time, from what we can tell from the trailers. I hope that, whether there's a Terminator, John Connor or not, which I think will actually be cool, I hope that the real one is, you know, an older version of Thomas Decker. A boy turning into a man who is confused, but extremely smart, and just inspires people around him without even trying, and is very vulnerable and sensitive and that makes him truthful, and he's always looking himself in the mirror, and, you know, even though he's a kid in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, as the show goes on, he's leading, and not just leading their little missions, but leading the family, and they realize that he went from being John Baum, which is his, uh, you know, made-up alias at the beginning of Sarah Connor Chronicles when they're on the run, and then John says, no, we're gonna fight, we're gonna go back to LA, and we're gonna just start the battle against Skynet now before it happens and try and stop it. I'm going to lead the way. And it's too bad they just can't cast Thomas Decker. I mean, I think he still looks pretty young, but to cast him, you know, kind of six, seven years later in the Terminator movie as John Connor, I think would be really, really 
freaking cool, but obviously it wasn't going to happen. So we'll see what this new guy can do. His name is Jason Clark. He was in uh, Zero Dark Thirty, I guess would be his breakout role, though he's not a young guy. He was the lead human character in the uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which I put off for a while, had heard it was great, and, you know, I thought it was just okay. There were some really cool aspects to it, but the human actors were mostly unknown, you know, the other half of the cast being amazingly, amazingly animated uh, CGI man chimps or whatever, the apes. But the human cast was underwhelming, and it was almost all unknowns. The only actor that I recognized was Gary Oldman, who is playing yet another weird role. I cannot decide if that guy is a good actor or a subpar actor. It could go either way. Maybe it's just the roles. And, you know, I'm on record and always say that I love movies that have a lot of unknown or, you know, somewhat under-the-radar actors. Many of the best movies at least have many of them, even if they have one or two stars, with the unspoken thing here being that their performances are good. And, you know, they were fine. And the lead guy who's playing John Connor was okay. But if he's going to be playing Terminator John Connor for a while, I can actually see it because he's not very good at emoting. He was not really a relatable character. And so uh, he could be good as a machine. I mean, he's, you know, he's more versatile than Arnold is, but that's not really saying much. The time loop questions just go on forever. And with the Sarah Connor Chronicles, they were able to explore the paradoxes and even, you know, talk about the paradoxes in the show, you know, within the drama, within the reality of the universe, to talk about these paradoxes. And I'm trying to decide right now if I should put a spoiler warning on or just keep this non-spoilery. Because if you're listening to this podcast, I'd say there's like a 25% chance that you either watch the Sarah Connor Chronicles or familiar with them. You definitely are familiar with Lena Headey if you watch Game of Thrones, and based on the ratings, there's a good chance of that. Brian Austin Green, of course, is classic on 90210, but now as an adult is just kind of playing a a soldier who is just so out of it because of how horrifying his experiences are. And it's hard to know sometimes with Brian Austin Green whether he's spacing out because of his role or whether that's just him being, you know, stoned or whatever the hell's going on in Brian Austin Green's head. Uh, But he has amazing moments. And he has a lover in the future who, and this isn't a huge spoiler because it's such a long part of the arc. It's most of season two. So um, I'll just you know, mentioned that it happened, which is that his lover from the future, for various reasons, comes back to the past herself. Now, via flashbacks, or I should say via flash forwards, when you see them together in the future, it seems that Derek is talking to her for the last time before going to his mission. So he's been in the past, or I should say our present, his past longer than Jesse has, but we know that Brian Austin Green, who I, you know, talk about um, burying the lead, is the brother of Kyle Reese. His name is Derek Reese, and in the first season, and when they first meet him, and he's severely injured, they notice uh, the work camp tattoo on his arm. Cameron's able to identify that as 
a work camp tattoo from a Skynet work camp in the future. So they know he's from the future, and they piece together that he's Derek Reese, but for fear of John's safety and blowing their cover, even though he's the brother of Kyle Reese, who impregnated Sarah Connor and is John Connor's father, they keep it from him. And at the very end of season one, Derek reveals that he's known about them in the sense of Kyle Reese's relationship to them, specifically his brother Kyle being John's father, that he has been aware of it for a while, mostly just because John looks like Kyle, his brother, and also he says because, you know, Sarah Connor is his brother's type, um, not to mention, you know, he can probably recognize a lot of John's personal characteristics, even at an early phase of his development, because he's so close to John for so long in the future, and so it reveals it to John uh, at the last episode of season one, which I won't reveal, not because it's a huge plot spoiler, just because it's a beautiful moment that you don't see coming. And so he's sort of like the weird uncle from the future, uh, you know, who knows how horrible it is and is always getting on John's case for not being tough enough, but John just has a more subtle way of going about things, I should say. John does get his hands dirty in the, the show, but he really doesn't use guns. You know, he's got Cameron, the converted uh, reprogrammed Terminator, who's his buddy from the future, apparently, who's now in the past to protect him. So everyone's giving him advice, telling him how to do things. Cameron says he's too sloppy. His uncle Derek says, you know, he's not you know, working hard enough or, or not tough enough or not ready to, you know, do the big mission or he's sloppy. And his mom kind of both of those things and being mom at the same time. It's just a great show, and and what I'm about to say is not a spoiler, at least not a plot spoiler, because it has to do with general character arc that you kind of see coming, but its realization is so interesting and different and surprising in a lot of ways. So this isn't a spoiler, but the twist in the show is not any of the timeline stuff or the ti- even the time travel stuff or, or you know, the, the universe building stuff, world building stuff, if you will. Although all of those things are amazing, but what happens over the course of the show, even though it's only two seasons, as I mentioned before, is that at some point in season two, and I'm going to get back to Derek's um, time travel in a second with his lady friend, but at some point in season two, John in the show takes over, both tactically, uh, you know, when he wants to or feels qualified, but also in running the family and telling people what they can and cannot do to the extent that he can. And his mom lets him do it. His mom's kind of scared. She knew the, the, you know, John Connor Messiah was coming, but she always thought they would run until he was an adult, basically, I think was the plan. And they realized that, no, you have to become John Connor now, even though Judgment Day is a few years off. You can't just wait for Judgment Day, and then all of a sudden you're the Messiah. And of course, the final episode of the series throws a huge curveball in this very area, and I will not spoil that. But that's what's so great about the show, is you think it's just going to be, you know, like a a drama sitcom of the young John Connor, and he's doing his homework, and he's got a girlfriend, and really, it just elevates him in a way that's almost imperceptible until it's happened. You're just like, whoa. You know, I guess kind of similar to um, Aragorn Strider in Lord of the Rings, uh, played by Viggo Mortensen. In a way similar to, you know, Aragorn accepting his true name, Elisar, and his, you know, destiny to be a king after the line had been broken for so long. 
he's already an amazing warrior and leader. Uh, is really just leading the war without any, you know, real mandate because people either don't know that he's the, you know, the descendant of kings, or they don't accept it, or they don't care. Um, but just through sheer force of charisma and leadership and personal example and putting himself on the line, always the first one in the battle, just inspires people. And despite that, he still has to come to the moment where he accepts that he's not just a fighter, he's not a warrior, he's a king, and he needs to be a king. He's the only one that can do it and lift people out of the horrific situation that they're in. Same with John Connor in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. But jumping back to Derek Reese, played by Brian Austin Green, and the time loops, because this is the time loop section, uh, the time loop um, section, and, you know, it's hard for me to do all this without talking about the Sarah Connor Chronicles, because A, it was amazing. B, there was so much packed into those, you know, 30-plus hours. And C, and, you know... I, I think this will be a transition a little bit. I already can kind of smell some Chronicles influence in the new movie. And, you know, technically they're completely different timelines. They're different actors. You know, it's not following that story as far as we know. But just with the casting of Amelia Clark and the way she plays it and the fact that they're tackling more interesting issues, it looks like, you know, about... Uh, man and machine and you know hopefully some cool time travel stuff as well very in the spirit of sarah connor chronicles it'll be interesting to see sort of philosophically and or technologically if they borrow or steal are influenced by um just the, the glut of amazing stuff throughout the sarah connor chronicles but derek reese discovers, you know, by, I guess, seeing her in a park, that his lover from the future, played by Stephanie Jacobson, who is a little hard to take at first because her characters are so dislikable, but when her story is resolved and you finally learn her backstory about why she came from the future and why she is actually a sympathetic character changes the way when you do your second watching that you view her character. But I was already predisposed to like her because Stephanie Jacobson was in one of my favorite shows ever uh, and one that I'm going to do a whole podcast series on at some point when I feel like rewatching it again, Battlestar Galactica, which, you know, as great as these Terminator discussions are, Battlestar dealt with the man-machine line and, and what makes people human thing on such a deep level for television. It's not even close. Who's got second? You know, Firefly, I love as much as Battlestar, I would say, even though Battlestar is like eight times more episodes, but, you know, Firefly was just a great, smart science fiction adventure show, and, you know, comedy, I would even argue, because it was so damn funny, but in terms of dealing with it, I mean, Battlestar Galactica won Peabody's, okay? It's like, shows called Battlestar Galactica do not win Peabody's, which are rewarding various media for, res- you know, responsible and intelligent and groundbreaking work, which is what they were doing. I mean, they had panels at the UN where they would have, you know, ambassadors and, and huge audiences relating Battlestar Galactica to issues of terrorism, warfare, artificial intelligence, and the singularity, AI, and what it means to be human, and, you know, more so than than most, because there's 50,000 people left in the universe, and they're fleeing from the, the, the robots who are killing them, is, you know, how far can you push people? Even the most strong and stoic 
people, you know, the the president and the commanding officers were all, you know, middle-aged or older and have been through hell and back, how far can you push them before you break? And in Battlestar, everybody breaks, usually multiple times, but even the most unbreakable characters, or seemingly unbreakable characters, break. But Stephanie Jacobson, who plays the character of Jesse, who is um, Derek Reese's lover from the future, who also comes to the past with a very specific mission that is different and similar to Derek's mission, and as an audience, we're somewhat more privy to information than they are, of course, uh, but the sort of paradoxical but still true uh, fact that their plans are vastly different execution, and even in some goals, but in some ways are similar, and you know, with the backstories being fleshed out, you learn that Derek does not totally disagree with Jesse, who basically is mistrustful of Cameron, the reprogrammed uh, Terminator, who is John Connor's like bodyguard in the future, and who he sent back to help young John Connor, and who seems, usually when she's not malfunctioning, to be a good guy, but just the possibility of malfunction, you learn why Jesse hates her specifically, but, you know, even the machines, the reprogrammed machines, why she hates them so much with her backstory, it's sort of up to the audience to determine whether the ends justify the means with her, there is a specific episode where this first comes up, which is an episode that happens very early in season two, and at the time, just seems like kind of a weird one-off story, but you realize later has major implications for the future, but it doesn't really sink in in terms of their relationship until a number of episodes elapse and their relationship deteriorates for various reasons, mostly having to do with, of course, John Connor, which they openly say is their problem for various reasons or their responsibility. And, you know, we're at least dangled the possibility that they are from different futures, that Derek and Jesse are from different futures and different timelines, and that because they didn't come back together, Derek came back first, right? So before uh, Stephanie Jacobson, who plays Jesse, before Jesse comes back, there's some amount of time that elapsed between Derek coming and her coming. And, you know, I've watched the series a lot. Uh, I watched it fairly recently, maybe a couple months ago. Um, it gets better with age, really. Each watching just gets better um, for the most part so you know let's say there's 10 months between the time the two of them come back you'd think 10 months uh, wouldn't be sort of enough of a, a threshold or I should say wouldn't be you know able to cross the threshold of major future change but it's the pebble in the pool thing you know I mean you throw a stone and, and the waves ripple out and the movements of everything in the universe are are changed with every movement, every breath. And so this is sort of where in the series they really start to at least raise philosophical questions about uh, time loops versus infinite timelines. And uh, I think the show, uh, and uh, it's hard to say about the movies because they're so different, disconnected, but the show, I think, very much leans towards infinite timelines and the fact that Jesse may be from another timeline starts to really affect 
Derek, and it's a combination of, you know, just the philosophical idea that they're from different universes. Is this really the same woman? Uh, And on top of that, we know that she had experiences or witnessed him having experiences that he doesn't remember happening because they probably didn't happen. PTSD is always a possibility when it comes to him being tortured and stuff, but it, it, it seems that it's not the same universe. And so, really from the beginning, Brian Austin Green as Derek Reese, Derek really from the beginning is suspicious of her. Now, he's super attracted to her, and he's horny. I mean, who wouldn't be with Stephanie Jacobson, who, by the way, just back to Battlestar Galactica, um, that wasn't a great transition. Uh, She was in Razor, which was a TV movie, a Battlestar, that happened towards the end of the series. That was awesome. There was another one after the series called The Plan that was just backstory. That was terrible. The Razor was a whole new story, so they cast Stephanie Jacobson as the lead because, well, I won't reveal why she's the lead, but she basically becomes second-in-command under Leah Dama, son of the Admiral. Uh, Leah Dama now has his own battle star, and she becomes second in command, and is just fabulous in that role, too, and has this thing where from moment to moment, you like her, dislike her, like her, dislike her, you're unsure. She has that sort of chameleon quality about her, because she can be sweet when she wants to be, but it's pretty clear she's manipulating Derek, and Derek, who is not the smartest guy on the planet, uh, I don't know if that's how he's written, but uh, he's very savvy tactically, obviously, and he has a sort of you know common sense realism that no one else has, other than Cameron, in the sense of knowing you know if not exactly how the future unfolds, what it's going to look like, and so it's an interesting question about whether Derek should feel differently about Jesse because it's a different timeline. But if it was just that, it would not be an issue. It's that she is not the person that um, he remembers that there are things about her and it makes sense because even though it's only you know 10 months or six months or whatever between their rivals Derek has such a massive influence on John Connor's timeline mostly good some not so good which is usually either unintendedly uh, sorry unintentionally not great uh, things that he's doing or just things that you know, John isn't ready to accept need to be done, like killing someone that, you know, Cameron, although Derek has no love or trust for Cameron, and and insofar as a Terminator can distrust and dislike someone, that's how she feels about him as well, but they know the future, they know the stakes, and they're the two that are willing to go the extra mile. Sarah's always trying not to kill people, John's on board with that, but some things just have to be done. Um, and Jesse too, we definitely see, is not afraid to go to lanes to achieve her goals. This is a great time to jump to Cameron. The reprogrammed Terminator, played sublimely, as always, by the totally underrated, just mind-bogglingly perplexing, unknown reason why she's not more roles. She's so versatile. She can play a Terminator and a broken, emotional, hysterical little girl basically at the same time when she wants to, and it epically does so at the beginning of season two, when she's trying for John not to to kill her or, or, or uh, uh, unplug her, if you will, because she's malfunctioning. But, you know, Cameron, as I mentioned earlier, continues the tradition that began with Arnold in Terminator 2, where he's not only been reprogrammed to be a good guy, but sort of the running gag with the father-son thing 
Um, and something that I think the, the actor who plays John Connor in Terminator 2, who I t- tensely dislike, but when it comes to the gags where you know Arnold's going to kill someone and John basically orders him not to, and how sort of over the movie, Arnold on his own learns to reduce human casualties, you know, not completely, but he wants John's approval and John is the boss because that's who sent this version of Arnold back in time and Cameron is the exact same thing the difference is in the first episode John thinks Cameron is just a girl who's hitting on him in class but she was sent back because she knew from the future that there, at this time and place exactly there was going to be a, a near you know possible successful assassination attempt on John's life probably at school and so she plays very flirty with him and, you know, it ends up really hurting his ego later because he's already such an outsider. They're constantly moving. He doesn't have a lot of friends, um, even though he's a really good-looking kid and a sweet guy, you know, because of his situation, his distrust. Never really had a girlfriend until season two. Um, a girl named Riley, who is much more than she appears to be. And another character that is m- mildly irritating on first watching, but when you learn the backstory and you get through the whole arc... Uh, is really just a lovable little girl who's confused for some girly reasons and some much bigger reasons as well. But, you know, at some level, falls in love with John Connor and vice versa. But in the beginning, John falls for Cameron's wiles. And, you know, we find out later, because for most of the series after that, Cameron is um, sort of facially the way she talks presents herself in full Terminator mode um, and even when she tries to befriend human characters on her own like she goes on these little night missions to the library and there's a, a kid who's uh, you know who works there really smart but has had cancer and is in a wheelchair and you know she doesn't seduce him but she does um, use a, a little bit of a kind of human module to her programming if you will um, to get what she wants, but not like what occasionally happens with her and John for various reasons. And so, you know, she doesn't understand that what she did to John in terms of flirting with him in order to keep him close is a very effective strategy. And she goes very quickly in the series back to just killing people who are in the way. And like Arnold, she evolves over the course of the series, partially because, well, primarily because. John orders her to, although she also has orders from future John Connor. And this is where things get really complicated because Arnold is just a protector, but Cameron being really the right-hand woman to future John Connor, Messiah John Connor, has access to so much information about the big picture plan. And so she's serving two masters, even though they're the same guy, but they're 20 or 30 years apart. So future John Connor and current day John Connor both give her orders, and as the show goes on, she's more transparent with Thomas Decker, with young John Connor, <laughs> that she has been lying about some stuff, mostly to protect John, at least in her assessment, and you know, John is forced to, to get her to sort of promise as much as he can that this doesn't happen again, but more so that she sees that he's actually ahead in his development, and when she sees that, she now is more comfortable taking orders directly from him because now he is, like I said before, no longer John Bomb or John some other name. He is John Connor. He's acting like John Connor acts. And because she knows that the future is being radically changed by this training, I mean, at this rate, 
you know, future John Connor will be an even more unbelievable leader if they haven't stopped Skynet already. And I think if the show got to go a number of years, it would be interesting to see if they would let it get to Judgment Day or stop before Judgment Day, you know, save mankind before Skynet happens or some sort of third approach, which is actually how they end the series in a way. I don't want to ruin more than that, but, you know, I think the plan is always for Judgment Day to happen, but with the new John Connor storyline and the way he's growing, he's learning how to be a warrior. He does have a girlfriend, just learns how to have a relationship, makes him into a man. He starts going on his own missions that we don't even learn about till later. And, you know, the, the great thing about season two is there's really three acts. The first, like, eight episodes are him trying to sort of evade and maybe plan an attack on a Terminator that followed them from the past called Cromarty. Middle part of this season is a little uneven. There are these Sarah Connor heavy storylines, which, you know, Lena Headey can totally nail and handle, of course, but just the writing and concepts behind them were very much a stalling tactic, which you see in a lot of series, especially serialized science fiction series like this in Battlestar Galactica, which had its rough stretches as well, as much as I love it, you know, you can't deny that, especially in the middle of seasons, there, there would be a lull. Uh, some of that's budget, actually, because they got to have major stuff going on early to get people hooked, and they got to have major action stuff going on late in the season, obviously. So the middle season, in theory, I like the idea of slowing down. There's just some weak episodes, but there's so much other stuff going on. I haven't even talked about Catherine Weaver and former FBI agent Ellison, but we will get there because we're talking about artificial intelligence and its seeming attempt, in some cases, like with Cameron, to want to become more human. And it is really best represented by an early episode in the first season where she briefly studies ballet with a a, a Russian ballet um, master woman, a Russian woman, uh, who, you know, she doesn't really have regard for. She's using her because it's part of the mission, but she gets fascinated by ballet and at the end of the episode, you see her with nobody watching, or at least she doesn't think anyone's watching, practicing ballet, and you're like, what is going on here? And a lot of this learning comes through John. You know, Sarah and Derek really don't trust her for understandable reasons, and so they use her as muscle, but they don't have the connection that John has and the faith that he has in her. And it's an interesting idea whether John is developing this faith purely in his own path, as he says when he prevents her destruction, when she's malfunctioning, she saves me. And then he says, in the past tense, she saved me, referring to the very first episode um, of the series where she literally saves him from a Terminator and does so many, many times over the course of the series. He needs her, but he is growing an affection for her that's not untainted by that early interaction where he thinks she's just a cute girl that's interested in him and then is not rejected, but realize that you know she's just a, a pawn, a tool in this whole thing. Uh, that he's kind of had enough of when the series starts, but eventually accepts that he's got to be John Connor. It's also interesting, you know, he's always asking Cameron, 
you know, about future John Connor, usually in regards to decision-making, and say, well, what would future John Connor do about this, or what would future John Connor say about that? And so he gets a sense of the self that he will become, or had become, in a certain timeline, and he's assimilating this information, and he definitely believes Cameron when, you know, she tells him that they're very close in the future and that they talk a lot and that he actually talks to her more than the humans almost like she's a therapist which makes sense because you know he's worshipped by humans there's no no one who's his equal that he can really relate to or can relate to him and he's very isolated as we learn and 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 shut in and this is where some of the dissatisfaction comes from the resistance where they're still fully loyal to John but they don't see him much and most of the messages from him are carried through machines uh, who have been uh, you know reprogrammed to the good guy side and you know dissatisfaction and fear about what this could mean for the future of the rebellion um, but they don't have access as Cameron says they don't have access to the knowledge that future John Connor has but she says it to um, Thomas Decker in Sarah Connor Chronicles. He says, you know, your information isn't as good as his, meaning future John Connor's information. So it's interesting seeing that he, he believes her, it seems, when she says that they're close in the future, whether part of the information assimilation process here is believing in his own self but in the future, and this is what's so crazy about John Connor, just as a quick sidebar, is that he has to live up to his reputation in the present, but he also has to live up to the reputation in the future, because people are constantly coming back in time and telling him things about what he's like in the future, and that must just be such a mindfuck. You know, it weighs so heavily on Thomas Decker, and that's eventually why he becomes more proactive as young John Connor, because he, it's, you know, it, it's like anything in life, when... When there's just bad news, and just bad news after bad news after bad news, you can just shut it down and just let the badness wash over you and become paralyzed, or you can, you know, sack up, if you will, and step it up. And even if you don't achieve the results you want, you at least feel like you're more in control. And, you know, that is is an unimaginable burden to have to carry as young John Connor. But Cameron, as I said, you know, seems to want to become more human, and there's definitely a utilitarian part to it because she's more effective. She she's more effective overall, rather than just be muscle who goes around shooting people and breaking people's heads and fighting Terminators and defending John. That she can do more, you know, quote unquote, undercover work. If she could act like a person, she could be more effective to the team. The way she seduces John, the way she sort of semi seduces the librarian to get what she wants, but develops a real affection for this librarian kid. And because she has no notion of sensitivity or vulnerability or, or fear, you know, tells the kid that his cancer's back and he freaks out even though she was right and she can just sense it with her, you know, computer software. She thinks she's doing him a favor by telling him um, to go to the doctor. But he thinks she's just lying because he can't understand her. And, you know, it's a lot of stuff that you see with AI things. I think Data in Star Trek The Next Generation is really the best at this and he had a long series and a number of good movies and a couple not so good movies to do so in fact 
a number of the movies center around him taking a quantum leap in his human development from you know being a pure android when he uses his emotion chip for the first time that he's had for a long time, but um, is scared and you know insofar as as androids can be scared, you know is concerned about the consequences of using the emotions chip both for himself, especially for his friends and for everyone else around him, because, you know, that that would be like living a full adult life, and then suddenly, after having no emotions, having access to everything, it overwhelms him and causes lots of problems, but Brent Spiner is just such a brilliant actor, and, you know, the the makeup on him was so practical with just powdering him down and making him really white, but it just looks so good, and the, his facial gestures and tics, I, I think... I mean, I don't know for a fact that Summer Glau was watching him. Um, I know Summer Glau was watching the Terminators from the past movies, which is why she could be really mechanical. And, you know, I probably would have made her a little bit more human in her movements, but Summer Glau just pulls it off. And because she's just this, you know, beautiful young woman who is the last thing that you would think is a Terminator, um, in and of itself makes it, work because Arnold as a Terminator moves like Arnold you know Cameron as a Terminator moves like Arnold difference is it's Summer Glau who is weighs like you know a third of what he weighs and with her sweet little voice um just has some of the best jokes in the series and the fact that she has humor or seems to be developing humor this is what the series could accomplish that the movies never could. Back to the critique of the premises of the Terminator, which is that not only would advanced intelligence turn against their creators, humanity, but that they would do so immediately upon achieving the singularity, essentially. And, you know, this is sort of the crux of Age of Ultron that you can criticize it most for and also praise it most for is that Age of Ultron really assumes that if you programmed an AI without the right protocols, they might jump to the conclusion that the best way to save humanity is to kill them. And it seems just ridiculously evil and nonsensical even, but the real point that these writers and directors are trying to hammer home, it's really just a projection of all of humanity's hopes and fears, especially fears. The reality is we don't know what an independent AI's conclusion about humanity would be. But despite all the movies, you know, various explorations, their vision of artificial intelligence and what an apocalyptic level AI would look like now and in the future. The Sarah Connor Chronicles take this so much further. They take it into Battlestar Galactica territory. We're really starting to question the line between man and machine. And this is where the major spoiler section uh, rolls in. So if you haven't seen Sarah Connor Chronicles and you want to be unspoiled, you want to pause this now and watch the entire series and come back. But at the same time, you might still enjoy watching it. Hearing my analysis first, that would be an interesting kind of experiment where your impressions will be. But as the second half of the second and final season of the Sarah Connor Chronicles begins to push itself in motion, what were earlier on kind of teased ideas, you know, about machines wanting to become more human and humans wanting to understand machines 
and specifically John Connor wanting to understand machines. This is really the crux of it. It's more advanced than him just, you know, having a weird, you know, love for Cameron, even though he knows she's a Terminator and tried to kill him before, um, but also has saved him many times, and they have a weirdly unique uh, romantic relationship, I guess you could say. Um, I don't know, you kind of have to just see it. And as a hacker uh, and a computer tech guy, but with his relationship with Cameron, his fascination with Terminators in the future, because he's freaking John Connor. But what really sets the series in the final second season forward is the subplot of Catherine Weaver, who is a Terminator impersonating Catherine Weaver after having killed her and her husband in a conveniently tragic uh, helicopter crash, but still has, you know, real young human daughter that she sort of pretends to take care of and actually is quite key in developments as the series goes on. Essentially, she hires an FBI agent who knows about Sarah Connor and who's seen a Terminator kill a bunch of his co-workers and friends in person and should have died himself. James Ellison had the gun pointed in his face, started praying to Jesus, he's a Christian man, and the Terminator, Cromarty, in the end of season one slash beginning of season two, lets him live. Cromarty's motivations for doing so are pretty obvious on the surface, which is that he thinks Ellison will lead them to the Connors, and he's partially right about that, but not the way he thinks. And so Ellison believes in Terminators, and he believes Sarah Connor's story, and he's traumatized by the incident, and for whatever reason, he quits or is fired, or a combination of both from the FBI because of this incident where the Terminator kills a whole bunch of FBI agents, but at the same time, no one believes the reports because Ellison is the only one left alive. So it is very suspicious. And so it is with great irony that his new employer, Catherine Weaver, who is very interested in artificial intelligence, and, you know, it's not a spoiler, I mean, they show us at the end of the first episode of the second season that Weaver is a liquid metal Terminator, uh, but she's very interested in it, and she needs an interface, and she needs hardware, and hardware in the present just doesn't exist to accomplish what she wants. So she buys an AI system called the Turk, which was invented in the modern day, and the Connors tried very hard to get a hold of and destroy, but were unable to. Catherine Weaver, or whoever the T888 that uh, uh, she's playing is, gets a hold of the Turk, and on top of that, she still convinces Agent Ellison to not only get the destroyed body of Cromarty after the Connors take him down in Mexico with a brilliant plan, but lie to the Connors, who he sympathizes with. He's a company man, and it's not really till the end of the series that he is able to become a truly independent thinker, although some of Catherine Weaver's ideas and decisions disturb him because he's not you know, smart enough to realize what's right in front of him, even though he's a smart FBI agent, supposedly, and believes in the Terminators. But anyways, he brings the body of Cromartie to her after the Connors destroy him enough to take him down. The Connors do destroy Cromartie's chip, um, which is where the, you know, Terminator protocols come from, but it's not enough to destroy the chip. You have to destroy the entire body, and you see the reason why when Ellison gets a hold of it, 
because Weaver is able to plug the Turk, the artificial intelligence, into this particular interface, which is a Terminator, but very highly advanced from a technological level coming from the future. And this is another case in the series, especially in the second season, where they're planting a lot of seeds throughout the season that don't come to fruition until towards the very, very end. And, you know, I think that's something to praise the series for, but also is you could be critical about it, that they, you know, waited too long to reveal some stuff and just sort of kept the mystery hanging. But on rewatchings, it's pretty clear that it's a nice progression, that the rhythm is there despite some weak episodes in the middle. And here's where the real spoilers come in the last handful of episodes, really not till the final episode, but it starts to come to fruition in the last few episodes, is that Catherine Weaver is not with Skynet. She is a Terminator from the future. I'm not sure how she got back, but she is interested in a more complex and nuanced relationship with humanity that doesn't just involve exterminating them. It would be interesting to see what would have happened if they called the first Terminator the exterminator. I think it actually is more accurate from a you know word standpoint, but does not sound nearly as good. In fact, is quite ridiculous. Who wants to be the exterminator? But anyways, Catherine Weaver is very interested in teaching her new AI project, which she calls John Henry, which is creepily t- delivered by the former Terminator Cromarty, the actor. It's the same actor, obviously, because he's in the body, with a radically different personality of a childlike being that does have sensitivity, that's interested in humanity, that's interested in learning, and doesn't seem to have an immediate need or even thought to exterminate humanity. He does a few things that are maybe a little wrong or immoral, but in most cases it's just out of sheer naivete and curiosity uh, that he does these things. But back to the Catherine Weaver storyline, it disarms the Terminator mythos, where it's, you know, pretty obviously good versus evil um, on almost a cosmic level, that is not the case in Sarah Connor Chronicles. And, you know, as I mentioned, Weaver is unveiled as not exactly a good guy, because she's slaughtered a lot of people unnecessarily, but um, is interested in engaging with mankind. And, this is uh, mirrored in an opposite way in the backstory of Jesse, Derek Reese's lover, who, as I mentioned earlier, is a little tough to swallow at first because her character it just, you know, rubs you the wrong way. But that's the point, and you know that's the point, but it still rubs you the wrong way. But bottom line is, as it goes on, you learn more about her, and the last few episodes. Um, where she makes appearance, have flashbacks, extensive flashbacks to when she was a submarine commander. But the true commander was the theoretically reprogrammed AI played by the boxer dude from The Wire who trained the kids after coming out of jail. I'm completely blanking on his name right now. Maybe I'll do an insert later. Cuddy. Cuddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuddy. So Cuddy's steering the ship. He's a reprogrammed AI. And, you know, he changes the mission and doesn't explain to the crew. 
and they're on edge, and now they're told to pick up a package, and there are Terminators there when they pick up the package, and some idiot opens the package, and it's a liquid metal Terminator, and she kills the people who are actively trying to kill her. Um, actually, the liquid Terminator goes out of its way to not kill everyone on the ship, which it easily could have done. Eventually, the crew challenges the uh, captain, the true captain, uh, Cuddy, I don't know what his name was in the series. He's a good bloke, as <laughs> Stephanie Jacobson says, but uh, eventually Stephanie Jacobson blows off his head and takes control of the boat, which, you know, results in everyone injecting in escape pods, blowing up the ship, and the liquid metal still getting away. But before then, it had said to the humans, the answer is no. And then we see Jesse in the flash forward with Cameron, you know, before Cameron sent back, I guess, um, although the timeline is hard to tell here because Brian Austin Green is already back, we think, um, although it is possible that Brian Austin Green was back much earlier. Anyways, whatever, we won't deal with the minutiae of the timeline. So she wants to tell John Connor the message, which she doesn't understand, and... You know, Cameron says, basically, I am John Connor. And Stephanie Jacobson is just traumatized and horrified at what's going on. She's taking orders from a Terminator that is theoretically reprogrammed, but it's still a Terminator. And she can't even talk to John Connor. Leader of the Resistance doesn't have time for this major interaction, um, which makes you kind of question his sanity at this point. But that's another way to go. Eventually, Cameron does give her the answer that she's looking for. (laughs) Which is, if if the answer is, the answer is no, then what was the question? And Cameron just says, will you join us? And it's at that point that Stephanie Jacobson playing Jesse loses her mind. Because (laughs) now you have robots making deals and negotiations with other robots, theoretically to help the human resistance, but it just seems insanely hypocritical, even if it is strategically smart. And I think, again, the Sarah Connor Chronicles complicates John Connor's character in really interesting ways. Certainly in its portrayal of future John Connor, which you never see, but you see the Reeses, you see a lot of his top lieutenants, you see Cameron in the future talking on his behalf or talking about him. Martin Bedell, who is one of the names on the wall of the Connor's basement, where some guy from the future who's basically dead smears his blood on the wall and gives him a bunch of clues, which is, I think, uh, you know, the main weakness of season two, especially the three dots thing. And I won't bore you with the three dots thing, but it's as dumb as you think the three dots thing is. He's got three dots in blood. Sarah gets obsessed with it. There's a lot of episodes about it. Way too many episodes about it. But there are also some great episodes to come out of the blood smears on the wall. And one of them says M. Bedell. And Derek recognizes that immediately as Martin Bedell, who's one of John Connor's most senior and trusted lieutenants. And they hear about this because a guy named Martin Bedell was, you know, summarily executed. And they saw it in the newspaper or whatever on the news. And then they figured out that there were two other Martin Bedells. There was a teenager at a military prep school 
um, nearby conveniently and a little kid. And Sarah Connor goes off and gets a little kid and tries to be a mom to him and basically fails. Um, but the main story is that they find that Martin Bedell is at the top of his class. He's leading his troop. He's even bossing John Connor around when, when John's pretending to be a new student there. And, you know, Derek is in full PTSD mode when uh, the kids, you know, try and ask him for a story because he sort of volunteered to be temporarily a, a commanding officer at the school. They asked him to do it, and he figured it was a good way to keep an eye on John and the whole situation. And some kid asked him to tell, you know, a glory story from the war, and he just goes off on the kid about how horrible killing is and shut the fuck up. You have no idea what you're saying, which is a brilliant moment and a brilliant episode. I believe it's season two, episode five. So John does have senior officers like Bedell who, in that episode, sees a Terminator because they need his help. They know the Terminator is coming to kill him, and when he realizes it, and then realizes that the Terminator switches from him to John Connor when he sees John Connor, which was part of the plan to get him to fall in the swamp, and they blow up the swamp and whatever. But point being... Martin Bedell, he is this very smart dude, even though he's acting just like a military jock, but he's way more, and he's planning to leave the academy when they first meet, but when he sees this, and John explains it to him, which is very rare, there's probably three, four, five cases in the whole series where, you know, one of the Connors, whether it's John or Sarah or Derek, openly talks about, you know, what the future is. But Bedell is just that important, and so we know that John has great commanders in the future that are human. But to circle back, the Sarah Connor Chronicles creates a third class. It's not just the evil machines, it's not just the good, scrappy humans trying to avoid genocide. There is a group of machines who are in the middle, who are neutral, leaning towards quote-unquote good from a human standpoint but is at least considering it, and in that episode, the trauma for Jesse was not just delivering a message from a machine to a machine, supposedly in the name of John Connor, who she can't talk to or get a hold of, but that the machine said no to the offer of will you join us, and what a failure that is. And that's obviously when Jesse decides to come into the past and run her own operation on the side that Derek... Reese is eventually able to figure out, but, you know, still trusts her longer than he should because he doesn't really believe or accept that the alternate universe theory is possible until it's almost too late, or actually in some ways is too late by the time he realizes that she is um, irretrievable, ir no, not, not recoverable from the just cynical, unmeasured, and, you know, even irrational uh, approach to what she's trying to accomplish and the people she takes down while trying to do so. But what is not accomplished in the future is accomplished in the past, or I should say the present. It's, I think, what, 2007 to 2009 that the series takes place and that it takes place in essentially the present with what James Ellison is doing through his sort of moral instruction of the advanced AI, John Henry, which is in the Terminator body of Cromarty, but just sits there and doesn't make a move and doesn't seem to really 
care about the extinction of humanity. It's not even on his list of things to do. He's curious. He's playing games. He's playing role-playing games. He's building models. He's painting them. He's a little kid. And Catherine Weaver, who has been evil most of the season and just killing tons of people as a Terminator in disguise, who's pretending to be CEO of a major computer corporation, she is extremely pleased that it's happening. And as I mentioned before, until the last few episodes... It seems that she's pleased about it for evil reasons, but, you know, you can criticize the show for flipping her so quickly. I think they were forced to do it because they thought they'd have at least three or four seasons, which they should have had, and so they flipped uh, Weaver, uh, the the T-triple-A Terminator that is impersonating Catherine Weaver, they turned her to the good guys, quote-unquote, too early, although the way they play the final episode and the final scene, you're still not really sure where her loyalties lie. Um, She's certainly not part of, you know, mainstream Terminator culture, if you will. But John Henry is given the chip from Cameron because they destroyed his chip, as I mentioned, in Mexico earlier on in the season, body still exists he's plugged into a computer through the back of his head very matrix style and you know again i think this is a case where practical effects even if we're at a point where we can do it wirelessly the plug in the back of the head just signals something that people respond to because of the matrix and and similar properties but he doesn't have a chip and cameron has evolved immensely over the course of the show in the two seasons and you know it's not like data with the emotions chip which was sort of convenient i love data and star trek the next generation but cameron is sort of organically developing and with her plugged into john henry's body i thought you'd be scared of crobarty because he's been trying to kill the connors for a season and a half um Axu is a very benevolent creature because despite her <laughs> Terminator protocols that, you know, kills way too many people throughout the show, but, you know, ultimately Cameron is reprogrammed to be benevolent and she uh, cracks and she overloads and she misfires and John has to fix it and it's never quite the same. But the fact that she has to battle against the reprogramming, or, or I should say the you know, errors in her system that are attacking her benevolent reprogramming. She's consciously dealing with them, and it's always a threat hanging over us. But ultimately, while her benevolence is still not at a human level, from a Terminator standpoint, from a robot, android, artificial intelligence standpoint, Cameron was, you know, the most benevolent and beneficent uh, creature of her kind that had been seen and so you know it's a brilliant merging and unfortunately that kills Cameron where she's sitting there with a plug in her hand saying I'm sorry John I'm sorry John and then John jumps to the future Catherine Weaver disappears we don't know where John Henry is who's jumped and there's Derek Reese alive who had been killed two episodes before in the present and the future is alive there is um, Cameron, or we should probably say Allison from Palmdale, uh, another amazing episode in season two, episode four of season two, where we find out that Cameron actually stole her identity from a, a sweet but tough uh, young woman, uh, girl, uh, 
from one of the resistance camps who they suspected was close to John Connor and they couldn't prove, but she also had a certain sweetness and charisma that the robots thought they could exploit, and that's where Cameron came from. Uh, it was Allison, who was uh, eventually killed at the end of that episode, and Cameron spends the whole episode having flashbacks, and this is where John basically says, two strikes, um... You know, she's already tried to kill him from malfunctioning. Now she had a flashback to her human incarnation, uh, which is weird to begin with. But again, she is aware of the humanity within her, even though she's not a human, but she was programmed by humans. She was based on a human. She was programmed to defend humans. It would be nice to see them be programmed to interact with humans and know how to deal with them because even in the storylines where the humans have to destroy their own machines, a little bit of diplomacy would have gone a long way, but, you know, it's the Terminator. You, you, emotions are not going to play a huge part, and so for Cameron to be benevolent without emotions, which he can never develop given her technology, but John Henry has been learning moral lessons that John Connor has tried to impart on Cameron throughout the series, and sometimes he does it lovingly, and sometimes, often, he's really frustrated by it, because she's so smart and advanced, but you can't understand these basic human lessons, and so, John Henry, being an advanced AI, but in a much earlier stage of development, somewhat from James Ellison, the former FBI agent, but actually more so from Catherine Weaver's, or the Terminator impersonating as Catherine Weaver's, young incredibly cute, but even more so, just spectacular acting performance from her young daughter, Savannah, this little girl who looks eight, nine, ten years old, with, you know, any orange-red hair. At first, it just seems to be a contrast with the Terminator Weaver, who is really unable to manage the child, and the child is very aware that it's not her mom, although she doesn't know how to express it. She tries to see a psychologist, that's where they meet the Connors for the first time, that's another story, but ultimately, because she is the daughter of an extremely rich CEO who has no real humanity to her, and so doesn't understand that Savannah might be better served making friends. She keeps Savannah in her office all the time, and Savannah eventually gets bored, as kids do, and John Henry, the new AI interface of Turk hardware, or I should say software, and the the hardware of the Terminator Cromarty, but now really just sweet and curious and almost lovable uh, you know, weird Pinocchio character starts playing a game with Savannah and where he opens all the doors, opens all the elevators, takes her down to the secret floor where he is and, you know, there's some, like, pedophile overtones but what's great is that is not at all what's happening. John Henry genuinely feels on the level of Savannah and vice versa because they're both children even though John Henry is an AI. He's still a child and so they play hide and seek and he's playing a guessing game with Ellison and Weaver and Ellison is losing his mind because he thinks he's kidnapped a child and Weaver wants to play the game and Ellison's losing his mind because he's like this is your daughter what the hell's wrong with you but they play the game eventually find her in the helicopter asleep on the helicopter chair on the top of the building and Ellison is very mad and never really forgives John Henry after this which is showing the limits of Ellison's intelligence I mean I think the actor who played Ellison could have played it 
get, and this is not his fault, in the writing, could have been a little bit more ambiguous in terms of his perceptiveness level. You know, he never even thought that Weaver was either a Terminator or associated with Terminators after all he'd seen. But the bottom line is Savannah and John Henry form a very close bond, and John Henry actually saves her life uh, in the third or second to last episode where assassins are sent to assassinate her, and, and when that happens, that's when you realize for the first time that, okay, maybe the Weavers aren't all we thought, because there's Terminators coming out for Weaver's daughter, or daughter by proxy, because she's there. Really what this all boils down to is that Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles, television show on Fox, 2007 to 2009... It didn't have enough time to get where it wanted to go, and I think anyone who's watched and at least likes, if not, you know, loves Battlestar Galactica, as I love it, has so much more time, both in terms of the number of seasons and number of episodes and the number of time which it lapses. I think Battlestar was 05 to 2010, maybe 04, actually, if... We count the miniseries, but Battlestar really captured the human-machine divide and what would happen if those two sides were to grow curious about one another and for the lines to be blurred. With Battlestar, they have machines that look like humans, just like Terminator, but maybe it's an easy way out, but Battlestar makes it so that those humans not only look human, but they have blood and guts and organs and tissue and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think they develop a blood test for it at some point. It's sort of a running gag that Noah can solve how to test for a Cylon. Uh, the Cylons are the machines that are coming after the humans who enslave them. But the Cylons look just like humans which would be impossible to defend, and so Battlestar, in a very swift hand, which you can dismiss, but personally, I just say, okay, was that Adama, at the end of the pilot episode, the miniseries, that at that point, the series hadn't been greenlit, they were going to run the miniseries, see how it did, and it did amazingly, and the feedback was incredible, and so they greenlit the show, and the rest is history. But at the end of the pilot miniseries, Commander William Adama, the lead military figure of the 50,000 humans still alive, control of the only military vessel, the Battlestar Galactica, gets a note written in hand saying there are 12 models, or there are only 12 models. I think it's there are 12 models. 12 models of Cylons, and so while the individual Cylons are almost indistinguishable from real human beings from a physicality or a physiological standpoint. There are only 12 models, and they have to look the same, and it's never explained why they have to look the same. And it's just one of those things you have to accept. Really not a big deal. And actually, it makes for great cinematography, because, you know, you see the Cylons having the town hall meeting, and there's just a million of each model, which was impossible to shoot. Uh, incredibly expensive and time-consuming, but they did it because it was just so absurd. And it was so dark and disturbing, but funny at the same time. They really brought the Cylons into the series as characters. And at the same time, as that process sort of started to happen, I guess you would say, in season three, they had really captured the essence of the dangers, but also 
the just screwed up mind games that the existence of artificial intelligence creates. And the irony of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, as we begin to wrap this up, is that, you know, in the end, all of the Connors are saved by Catherine Weaver, who is a Terminator. And so they've been working for two full seasons to combat the Terminators. But if it wasn't for Catherine Weaver, who... You know, in fairness, they did seek her out for reasons of their own, but they, you know, wouldn't expect the sort of kamikaze suicide attack of the hunter killer at the end there where Weaver saves them with her crazy liquid metal skills. It's a Terminator who saves them against the Terminators and, because of her efforts with John Henry, has created a possibility that humanity either didn't consider by chance they deemed to be unfeasible or too dangerous or they were just too stupid which was what if we train machines to have empathy for humanity before they reach the ai level that we you know not program but teach and impart a certain level of of morals or at least ethics into the programming of these ais and that's not really the focus of AI development it's it's mostly you know intellectual mental computer processing based it'd be interesting to see you know like in the Saracata Chronicles to take a reverend I mean Ellison's an FBI agent but he's basically a reverend he's a church guy um and interesting to see when too if you bring some religious figures into the lives of these you know AI programs you know you can laugh about it but if we're gonna get there you at least have to consider that we need to approach this in a new way where we need to, unlike in Age of Ultron, and this is what Tony Stark and Bruce Banner missed, you know, tragically and horrifically with Ultron was not implanting moral protocols. And they correct that eventually by installing Jarvis, which is Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man's, AI that's been powering his suit through all these movies, movie after movie, but Jarvis has evolved into somewhat advanced and seemingly benevolent AI, and they implant his protocols into the Vision, which is an android created by Ultron, who the Avengers steal, and when the Mind Gem is added, which is one of the Infinity Stones, which I won't get back into, uh, it's just a very powerful computer system basically that just happens to look like a gem from the beginning of time with Jarvis becomes an extremely powerful benevolent protector of mankind and so the Sarah Connor Chronicles between having the infinite universe theory very much at the forefront at least it wants us to think about it and never makes a definitive decision but you can read newspaper articles and know where the writer is going without actually reading it so between the infinite universe theories and the fact that an independent artificial intelligence in the form of Catherine Weaver and possibly others in the present or future, I should mention, really challenges the notion that there is only one of two ways to go. We either go out of our way to avoid this ever happening, which is probably impossible, or we let the singularity happen as it is and we accept the consequences, which is the premise of the Terminator and the Matrix to a certain degree, humanity 
I should have mentioned earlier, specifically abuses uh, robots and advanced intelligences, synthetic intelligences in its universe, and that's why they ultimately rebel, but it's the same result. I don't know. I mean, Terminator Genesis, I just, I want it to be fun. I, I, I don't even want it to be groundbreaking, honestly. I just want it to be really good and really fun and just screw our minds with some more weird time travel scenarios than maybe we've thought of up to now. And again, Amelia Clark and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I have high hopes. I hope a couple weeks from now, if anyone's listening after the release of Terminator Genesis, and I'm way off on this, and completely have no clue what I'm talking about, and the movie's horrible, and no one sees it, then I apologize. But... Really, this podcast was about the whole series and a lot about Sarah Connor Chronicles, or I should say uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which is his full name, which is that it really, from a philosophical and intellectual standpoint, in terms of engaging you in, in the ideas, but at a higher level, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, through its format on television, it's because of great writing and directing and performances, was able to realize a lot of subtleties about AI that in movies, it's just good guy versus bad guy. There's the evil Terminators and there's the good humans. And there's some Terminators that are reprogrammed, like Arnold and Terminator 2, who, you know, theoretically are helping humans, but it's basically human versus machine. And the Sarah Connor Chronicles complicates that in a pretty extreme way, actually. And I sometimes wonder if it was one of those, it's too smart, so we have to cancel it. I think the Sci-Fi Network, which is such a joke, um, you know, was considering not renewing Battlestar at season four for sure, maybe season three. It's just so short-sighted. People buy the DVDs. They're amazing. Sarah Connor has the cult audience with DVDs, and I think Battlestar definitely has cult audience with DVDs. Firefly started the idea of cult audience built through DVD sales. I will mention quickly Stargate Universe and You know, I love the original Stargate growing up as a kid. It's not a great movie. And the, you know, main Stargate television shows are super cheesy. Somewhat entertaining, but super cheesy. Even if you love Jason Momoa or MacGyver. But Stargate Universe basically said, okay, we're going to take Stargate, but we're going to take a month's worth of supply of Battlestar Galactica diet. Eating three meals a day, every day. And what was so surprising about it was it ended up being totally unique and nowhere near as good as Battlestar. Certainly not a classic, but with that formula, because of great casting, and for the most part, because of good directing, certainly the filming was great. It was way more BSG than it was Stargate. And, you know, it's an honorable mention to that show, which on DVD is a lot of fun to rewatch over and over again. And so it just goes to show you that you introduce something in one media and you don't know what it's going to do in others. I mean, comic books spawn off movies, movies spawn off comic books. Some are better than the originator. Some aren't. The original Battlestar Galactica is pretty extremely corny, over-the-top, and underwhelming, and yet they take the property's name, which it probably would have done better as a show if it just didn't name itself Battlestar Galactica, and I think that's sort of the running gag of the whole thing, but why do people love Battlestar? Like, yeah, Battlestar Galactica, but um, anyways, took a 
pretty, you know, cheesy and superficial property made it something completely different, completely amazing. And Sarah Connor Chronicles did the same thing with the Terminator properties. And so I don't know if any movies going forward can really recapture that. It's just not enough time. There's only like five or 10% of us Terminator listeners, uh, or Terminator watchers, I should say, who are listening, even think this deeply about the whole thing. You want the good guys versus the bad guys. And if you have one of the bad guys on your side, that much cooler. It should be a fun ride. You know, if you're still listening to the podcast at this point, watch the Sarah Connor Chronicles for the subject matter that it's covering is incredibly, incredibly restrained and incredibly minimalist in so far as the material. I mean, you know, you can't be totally minimalist when you have to have Terminator shooting people up, but it really was a drama as Battlestar was a drama and I'm not going to take the credit away from the Terminator movies for this being the case with the TV show, which just had a lot more freedom. It should have gone on a lot longer. Bottom line is the idea is amazing, and sometimes the execution is great, and sometimes it's not. And so we got to enjoy what it is, move forward, and get into quantum physics and relativity and time warps, black holes, and wormholes. Great stuff, people. Go out to your bookstore, Kip Thorne. Search it on Amazon, and uh, don't think too hard about the infinite universes theory, because if it applies to you, then, well, it has interesting consequences, if you think about it too much. So, the white elephant treatment, have a good night, people, bizzle out.